Hi everyone, uh, welcome to the inaugural episode of this series. Uh, my name is Andrew Schlegel and uh, I, along with my friend J.R. Shaw, uh, are going to be bringing this to you. Um, so what we were planning on doing uh, before we begin, just to give a little background, is um, read some things that for us have been sort of formative pieces, uh, essays that we found important, um, that other people might want to read and might not have access to for whatever reason, because um, generally how the idea for this came around is I work at a fairly menial job, but I do have the small uh, pleasure of just being able to put in headphones at work. Um, while I do that, I tend to listen to uh, just a lot of various kind of podcasts, things like that, something to, you know, something maybe... Um, entertaining but a lot more sort of uh informative um and so we're sort of loath to call this a podcast because it does seem like every 20 something white guy uh with a microphone will make one uh and there you know there are certainly plenty of um podcasts out there so we didn't want to really just pile on to that but the whole purpose of this is like i said just to bring these things more to people um, because, you know, whatever it is, if you're at your job or even after you come home, um, reading is extremely tedious, uh, sometimes very kind of obscure and hard to grasp. Um, so we're really doing this just to sort of bring you things that might not be out there, things that I've tried to find, he's tried to find that we really couldn't, um, and that sort of space is a lot larger for essays, long-form pieces, things like that, than it is for, um, you know, books. Um, so we are going the route of instead of, you know, reading the entirety of Capital Volumes 1 to 3 to you, um, just sort of pieces that I think and we both think are important and that can lend a sort of different lens through which to view culture and politics, um, and philosophy and things like that. Um, so yeah, we are pretty excited to do this. Um, and so we're just going to jump right in. Um, so the piece that we're going to be reading for the inaugural episode that we've decided on is called Civil Religion in America, and it is by Robert Bella, uh, who was a sociologist, um, pretty well-renowned, um, and he wrote this piece uh, in uh, 1966, so quite a while ago, but we think it really does still bear some kind of relevance uh, to our current situation, um, just as um, a nation politically and culturally. Uh, and I, f I definitely want to acknowledge his family for very graciously allowing us to use this, um, because as we said, we do think it is pretty important. Uh, so, yeah, without further ado, uh, we're going to go ahead and jump right in. Civil Religion in America by Robert Bella. While some have argued that Christianity is a national faith and others have, that church and synagogue celebrate only the generalized religion of, quote, the American way of life, end quote, few have realized that there actually exists alongside of and rather clearly differentiated from the churches an elaborate and well-institutionalized civil religion in America. This article argues not only that there is such a thing, but also that this religion, or perhaps better, this religious dimension, has its own seriousness and integrity that requires the same care and understanding that any other religion does. Part 1. The Kennedy Inaugural 
John F. Kennedy's inaugural address of January the 20th, 1961, serves an example and a clue with which to introduce this complex subject. That address began, quote, We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom, symbolizing an end as well as a beginning, signifying renewal as well as change. For I have sworn before you and Almighty God the same solemn oath our forebears prescribed nearly a century and three quarters ago. The world is very different now. For man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and to abolish all forms of human life. And yet the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forebears fought are still at issue around the globe. The belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. End quote. And it concluded, quote, Finally, whether you are citizens of America or of the world, ask of us the same high standards of strength and sacrifice that we shall ask of you. With a good conscience, our only sure reward, with history the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. End quote. These are the three places in this brief address in which Kennedy mentioned the name of God. If we could understand why he mentioned God, the way in which he did, and what he meant to say in those three references, we would understand much more about American civil religion. This is not a simple or obvious task, and American students of religion would probably differ widely in their interpretation of these passages. Let us consider first the placing of the three references. They occur in the two opening paragraphs and in the closing paragraph, thus providing a sort of frame for more concrete remarks that form the middle part of the speech. Looking beyond this particular speech, we would find that similar references to God are almost invariably to be found in the pronouncements of American presidents on solemn occasions, though usually not in the working messages that the president sends to Congress on various concrete issues. How, then, are we to interpret this placing of references to God? It might be argued that the passages quoted reveal the essentially irrelevant role of religion in the very secular society that is America. The placing of the references in this speech, as well as in public life, generally indicates that religion, quote, has only a ceremonial significance, end quote. It gets only a sentimental nod that serves largely to placate the more unenlightened members of the community before discussion of the really serious business with which religion has nothing whatsoever to do. A cynical observer might even say that an American president has to mention God or risk losing votes. Semblance of piety is merely one of the unwritten qualifications for the office, a bit more traditional than, but not essentially different from, the present-day requirement of pleasing television personalities. But we know enough about the function of ceremonial and ritual in various societies to make us suspicious of dismissing something as unimportant because it is only a ritual. What people say on solemn occasions need not be taken at face value, but it is often indicative of deep-seated values and commitments that are not made explicit in the course of everyday life. But we know enough about the function of ceremonial and ritual in various societies to make us suspicious of dismissing something as unimportant because it is, quote, only a ritual, end quote. What people say on solemn occasions need not be taken at face value, but it is often indicative of deep-seated values and commitments that are not made explicit in the course of everyday life. Following this line of argument, it is worth considering whether the very special placing of the references to God in Kennedy's address may not reveal something rather important and serious about religion in American life. It may be countered that the very way in which Kennedy made his references reveals the essentially vestigial place of religion today. He did not refer to any religion in particular. He did not refer to Jesus Christ, or to Moses, or to the Christian Church. Certainly, he did not refer to the Catholic Church. In fact, his only reference was to the concept of God, a word that almost all Americans can accept, but that means so many different things to so many different people that it is almost an empty sign. 
Is this not just another indication that in America religion is considered vaguely to be a good thing, but that people care so little about it that it has lost any content whatever? Isn't Dwight Eisenhower reported to have said, quote, Our government makes no sense unless it is founded in a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is, end quote. And isn't that a complete negation of any real religion? These questions are worth pursuing because they raise the issue of how civil religion relates to the political society on the one hand and to private religious organization on the other. President Kennedy was a Christian, more specifically, a Catholic Christian. Thus, his general references to God do not mean that he lacked a specific religious commitment. But why then did he not include some remark to the effect that Christ is the Lord of the world or some indication of respect for the Catholic Church? He did not because these are matters of his own private religious belief and of his own particular church. They are not matters relevant in any direct way to the conduct of his public office. Others with different religious views and commitments to different churches or denominations are equally qualified participants in the political process. The principle of separation of church and state guarantees the freedom of religious belief and association, but at the same time clearly segregates the religious sphere, which is considered to be essentially private from the political one. Considering the separation of church and state, how is a president justified in using the word God at all? The answer is that the separation of church and state has not denied the political realm a religious dimension. Although matters of personal religious belief, worship, and association are considered to be strictly private affairs, there are, at the same time, certain common elements of religious orientation that the great majority of Americans share. These have played a crucial role in the development of American institutions and still provide a religious dimension for the whole fabric of American life, including the political sphere. This public religious dimension is expressed in a set of beliefs, symbols, and rituals that I am calling American Civil Religion. The inauguration of a president is an important ceremonial event in this religion. It reaffirms, among other things, the religious legitimation of the highest political authority. Let us look more closely at what Kennedy actually said. First, he said, quote, I have sworn before you and Almighty God the same solemn oath that our forebears prescribed nearly a century and three quarters ago, end quote. The oath is the oath of office, including the acceptance of the obligation to uphold the Constitution. He swears it before the people, you, and God. Beyond the Constitution, then, the President's obligation extends not only to the people, but to God. In American political theory, sovereignty rests, of course, with the people, but implicitly and often explicitly, the ultimate sovereignty has been attributed to God. This is the meaning of the motto, in God we trust, as well as the inclusion of the phrase, under God, in the pledge to the flag. What difference does it make that sovereignty belongs to God? Though the will of the people as expressed in the majority vote is carefully institutionalized as the operative source of political authority, it is deprived of an ultimate significance. The will of the people is not itself the criterion of right and wrong. There is a higher criterion, in terms of which this will be judged. It is possible that the people may be wrong. The president's obligation extends to the higher criterion. When Kennedy says that, quote, the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God, he is stressing this point again. It does not matter whether the state is the expression of the will of an autocratic monarch or of the people. The rights of man are more basic than any political structure and provide a point of revolutionary leverage from which any state structure may be radically altered. That is the basis for his reassertion of the revolutionary significance of America. But the religious dimension of political life, as recognized by Kennedy, not only provides a grounding for the rights of man that makes any form of political absolutism illegitimate, it also provides a transcendent goal for the political process. This is implied in his final words that, quote, here on earth, God's work must truly be our own, end quote. What he means here is, I think, more clearly spelled out in a previous paragraph, the wording of which, incidentally, has a distinctly biblical ring. Quote, Now the trumpet summons us again, not as a call to bear arms, though arms we need, not as a call to battle, though embattled we are, 
But a call to bear the burden of a long twilight struggle, year in and year out, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, a struggle against the common enemies of man, tyranny, poverty, disease, and war itself. End quote. The whole address can be understood as only the most recent statement of a theme that lies very deep in the American tradition, namely the obligation, both collective and individual, to carry out God's will on earth. This was the motivating spirit of those who founded America, and it has been present in every generation since. Just below the surface, throughout Kennedy's inaugural address, it becomes explicit in the closing statement that God's work must be our own. That this very activist and non-contemplative conception of the fundamental religious obligation, which has been historically associated with the Protestant position, should be enunciated so clearly in the first major statement of the first Catholic president seems to undermine how deeply established it is in the American outlook. Let us now consider the form and history of the civil religious tradition in which Kennedy was speaking. The idea of a civil religion. The phrase civil religion is, of course, Rousseau's. In chapter 8, book 4 of the social contract, he outlines the simple dogmas of the civil religion. The existence of God, the life to come, the reward of virtue and the punishment of vice, and the exclusion of religious intolerance. All of the religious opinions are outside the cognizance of the state and may be freely held by citizens. While the phrase civil religion was not used, to the best of my knowledge, by the Founding Fathers, and I am certainly not arguing for the particular influence of Rousseau, it is clear that similar ideas as part of the cultural climate of the late 18th century were to be found among the Americans. For example, Benjamin Franklin writes in his autobiography, Quote, I never was without some religious principles. I never doubted, for instance, the existence of the deity, that he made the world and governed it by his providence, that the most acceptable service of God was the doing of good to men, that our souls are immortal, and that all crime will be punished and virtue rewarded either here or hereafter. These I esteem the essentials of every religion, and, being to be found in all the religions we had in our country, I respected them all, though with different degrees of respect, as I found them more or less mixed with other articles, which, without any tendency to inspire, promote, or confirm morality, served principally to divide us, and make us unfriendly to one another." End quote. It is easy to dispose of this sort of position as essentially utilitarian in respect to religion. It is easy to dispose of this sort of position as essentially utilitarian in relation to religion. In Washington's farewell address, though the words may be Hamilton's, the utilitarian aspect is quite explicit. Quote, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism, who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to cherish and respect them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths, which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. End quote. But there is every reason to believe that religion, particularly the idea of God, played a constitutive role in the thought of the early American statesmen. Kennedy's inaugural pointed to the religious aspect of the Declaration of Independence, and it might be well to look at that document a bit more closely. There are four references to God. The first speaks of the laws of nature and of nature's God, 
that entitle any people to be independent. The second is the famous statement that all men, quote, are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, end quote. Here Jefferson is locating the fundamental legitimacy of the new nation in a conception of higher law that is itself based on both classical natural law and biblical religion. The third is an appeal to, quote, the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, end quote. And the last indicates, quote, a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. End quote. In these last two references, a biblical god of history who stands in judgment over the world is indicated. The intimate relation of these religious notions with the self-conception of the new republic is indicated by the frequency of their appearance in early official documents. For example, we find in Washington's first inaugural address of April 30th, 1789, quote, It would be peculiarly improper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aids can supply every defect, that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and happiness of the people of the United States a government instituted by themselves for these essential purposes, and may enable every instrument employed in its administration to execute with success the functions allotted to this charge. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of man more than those of the United States. Every step by which we have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token providential agency. The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. The preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the republican model of government are justly considered, perhaps, as deeply as finally staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. End quote. Nor did these religious sentiments remain merely the personal expression of the president. At the request of both houses of Congress, Washington proclaimed on October 3rd of that same first year as president that November 26th should be, quote, a day of public thanksgiving and prayer, quote, the first thanksgiving day under the Constitution. The words and acts of the founding fathers, especially the first few presidents, shaped the form and tone of the civil religion as it has been maintained ever since. Though much is selectively derived from Christianity, this religion is clearly not itself Christianity. For one thing, neither Washington nor Adams nor Jefferson mentions Christ in his inaugural address, nor do any of the subsequent presidents, although not one of them fails to mention God. The God of the civil religion is not only rather Unitarian, he is also on the austere side, much more related to order, law, and right than to salvation and love. Even though he is somewhat deist in caste, he is by no means simply a watchmaker God. He is actively interested and involved in history with a special concern for America. Here the analogy has much less to do with natural law than with ancient Israel. The equation of America with Israel and the idea of the, quote, American Israel, end quote, is not infrequent. What was implicit in the words of Washington already quoted becomes explicit in Jefferson's second inaugural when he said, quote, I shall need to the favor of that being in whose hands we are, who led our fathers, as Israel of old, from their native land and planted them in a country flowing with all the necessaries and comforts of life, end quote. Europe is Egypt, America the promised land. God has led his people to establish a new sort of social order that shall be a light unto all the nations. This theme, too, has been a continuous one in the civil religion. We have already alluded to it in the case of the Kennedy inaugural, and we find it again in President Johnson's inaugural address. Quote, They came already here, the exile and the stranger, brave but frightened, to find a place where a man could be his own man. They made a covenant with this land. Conceived in justice, written in liberty, bound in union, it was meant one day to inspire the hopes of all mankind, and it binds us still. If we keep its terms, we shall flourish. What we have then from the earliest years of the Republic is a collection of beliefs, symbols, and rituals with respect to sacred things and institutionalized in a collectivity. This religion, there seems no other word for it, 
while not antithetical to, and indeed sharing much in common with Christianity, was neither sectarian nor in any specific sense Christian. At a time when the society was overwhelmingly Christian, it seems unlikely that this lack of Christian reference was meant to spare the feelings of the tiny non-Christian minority. Rather, the civil religion expressed what those who set the precedents felt was appropriate under the circumstances. It reflected their private as well as public views. Nor was the civil religion simply religion in general. While generality was undoubtedly seen as a virtue by some, as in the quotation from Franklin above, the civil religion was specific enough when it came to the topic of America. Precisely because of this specificity, the religion was saved from empty formalism and served as a genuine vehicle of national religious self-understanding. But the civil religion was not, in the minds of Franklin, Washington, Jefferson, or other leaders, with the exception of a few radicals like Tom Paine, ever felt to be a substitute for Christianity. There was an implicit but quite clear division of function between the civil religion and Christianity. Under the doctrine of religious liberty, an exceptionally wide sphere of personal piety and voluntary social action was left to the churches. But the churches were neither to control the state nor to be controlled by it. The national magistrate, whatever his private religious views, operates under the rubrics of the civil religion as long as he is in his official capacity, as we have already seen in the case of Kennedy. This accommodation was undoubtedly the product of a particular historical moment and of a cultural background dominated by Protestantism of several varieties and by the Enlightenment, but it has survived despite subsequent changes in the cultural and religious climate. Until the Civil War, the American civil religion focused above all on the event of the revolution, which was seen as the final act of the exodus from the old lands across the waters. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were the sacred scriptures and Washington the divinely appointed Moses who led his people out of the hands of tyranny. The Civil War, which Sidney Meade calls, quote, the center of American history, end quote, was the second great event that involved the national self-understanding so deeply as to require expression in civil religion. In 1835, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote that the American Republic has never really been tried, and victory in the Revolutionary War was more a result of British preoccupations elsewhere and the presence of a powerful ally than of any great military success of the Americans. But in 1861, the time of testing had indeed come. Not only did the Civil War have the tragic intensity of fratricidal strife, but it was one of the bloodiest wars of the 19th century. The loss of life was far greater than any previously suffered by Americans. The Civil War raised the deepest questions of national meaning. The man who not only formulated, but in his own person embodied its meaning for Americans was Abraham Lincoln. For him, the issue was not in the first instance slavery, but, quote, whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure, end quote. He said in Independence Hall in Philadelphia on February 22nd, 1861, All the political sentiments I entertain have been drawn, so far as I have been able to draw them, from the sentiments which originated in and were given to the world from this hall. I never had a feeling, politically, that did not spring from the sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence." End quote. The phrases of Jefferson constantly echo in Lincoln's speeches. His task was, first of all, to save the Union, not for America alone, but for the meaning of America, to the whole world so unforgettably etched in the last phrase of the Gettysburg Address. But inevitably, the issue of slavery as the deeper cause of the conflict had to be faced. In his second inaugural, Lincoln related slavery and the war in an ultimate perspective. Quote, if we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away.
Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. End quote. But he closes on a note of, if not redemption, then of reconciliation, with malice toward none, with charity for all. With a civil war, a new theme of death, sacrifice, and rebirth enters the new civil religion. It is symbolized in the life and death of Lincoln. Nowhere is it stated more vividly than in the Gettysburg Address, itself part of the Lincolnian New Testament among the civil scriptures. Robert Lowell has recently pointed out the insistent use of birth images in this speech, explicitly devoted to, for example, these honored dead brought forth, conceived, created, a new birth of freedom. He goes on to say, quote, the Gettysburg Address is a symbolic and sacramental act. Its verbal quality is resonance combined with a logical, matter-of-fact, prosaic brevity. In his words, Lincoln symbolically died, just as the Union soldiers really died, and as he himself was soon really to die. By his words, he gave the field of battle a symbolic significance that it has lacked. For us and our country, he left Jefferson's ideals of freedom and equality joined to the Christian sacrificial act of death and rebirth. I believe this is the meaning that goes beyond sect or religion and beyond peace and war, and is now part of our lives as a challenge, obstacle, and hope. End quote. Lowell is certainly right in pointing out the Christian quality of the symbolism here, but he is also right in quickly disavowing any sectarian implication. The earlier symbolism of the civil religion had been Hebraic without any specific sense of being Jewish. The Gettysburg symbolism, quote, those who here gave their lives that that nation might live, end quote, is Christian without having anything to do with the Christian church. The symbolic equation of Lincoln with Jesus was made relatively early. W.H. Herndon, who had been Lincoln's law partner, wrote, quote, For fifty years God rolled Abraham Lincoln through his fiery furnace. He did it to try Abraham and to purify him for his purposes. This made Mr. Lincoln humble, tender, forbearing, sympathetic to suffering, kind, sensitive, tolerant, broadening, deepening, and widening his whole nature making him the noblest and loveliest character since Jesus Christ. I believe that Lincoln was God's chosen one, end quote. With the Christian archetype in the background, Lincoln, our martyred president, was linked to the war dead, those who, quote, gave the last full measure of devotion, end quote. The theme of sacrifice was indelibly written into the civil religion. The new symbolism soon found both physical and ritualistic expression. The great number of the war dead required the establishment of a number of national cemeteries. Of these, Gettysburg National Cemetery, which Lincoln's famous address served to dedicate, has been overshadowed only by the Arlington National Cemetery. Begun somewhat vindictively on the Lee estate across the river from Washington, partly with the end that the Lee family could never reclaim it, it has subsequently become the most hallowed monument of the civil religion. Not only was a section set aside for the Confederate dead, but it has received the dead of each succeeding American war. It is the site of the one important new symbol to come out of World War I, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. More recently, it has become the site of the tomb of another martyred president and its symbolic eternal flame. Memorial Day, which grew out of the Civil War, gave ritual expression to the themes we have been discussing. As Lloyd Warner has so brilliantly analyzed it, the Memorial Day observance, especially in the towns and smaller cities of America, is a major event for the whole community involving a rededication to the martyred dead, the spirit of sacrifice, and to the American vision. Just as Thanksgiving Day, 
which incidentally was securely institutionalized as an annual national holiday only under the presidency of Lincoln, serves to integrate the family into the civil religion, so Memorial Day has acted to integrate the local community into the national cult. Together with the less overtly religious 4th of July and the more minor celebrations of Veterans Day and the birthdays of Washington and Lincoln, these two holidays provide an annual ritual calendar for the civil religion. The public school system serves as a particularly important context for the cultic celebration of the civil rituals. In reifying and giving a name to something that, though pervasive enough when you look at it, has gone on only semi-consciously, there is a risk of severely distorting the data. But the reification and the naming have already begun. The religious critics of religion in general, or of the religion of the American way of life, or of American Shinto, have really been talking about the civil religion. As usual, in a religious polemic, they take as criteria the best in their own religious tradition, and as typical, the worst in the tradition of the civil religion. Against these critics, I would argue that the civil religion, at its best, is a genuine apprehension of universal and transcendent religious reality as seen in, or one could almost say, as revealed through the experience of the American people. Like all religions, it has suffered various deformations and demonic distortions. At its best, it has neither been so general that it has lacked incisive relevance to the American scene, nor so particular that it has placed American society above universal human values. I am not at all convinced that the leaders of the churches have consistently represented a higher level of religious insight than the spokesmen of the civil religion. Reinhold Niebuhr has this to say of Lincoln, who never joined a church and who certainly represents civil religion at its best. Quote, An analysis of the religion of Abraham Lincoln in the context of the traditional religion of his time and place and of its polemical use on the slavery issue, which corrupted religious life in the days before and during the Civil War, must lead to the conclusion that Lincoln's religious convictions were superior in depth and purity to those not only of the political leaders of his day, but of the religious leaders of the era." End quote. Perhaps the real animus of the religious critics has not been so much against the civil religion in itself, but against its pervasive and dominating influence within the sphere of church religion. As S.M. Lipset has recently shown, American religion at least since the early 19th century, has been predominantly activist, moralistic, and social, rather than contemplative, theological, or innerly spiritual. De Tocqueville spoke of American church religion as, quote, a political institution which powerfully contributes to the maintenance of a democratic republic among the Americans, end quote, by supplying a strong moral consensus amidst continuous political change. Henry Bargy in 1902 spoke of American church religion as, quote, la posie du civisme, end quote. It is certainly true that the relation between religion and politics in America has been singularly smooth. This is in large part due to the dominant tradition. As de Tocqueville wrote, quote, the greatest part of British America was peopled by men who, after having shaken off the authority of the Pope, acknowledged no other religious supremacy. They brought with them into the New World a form of Christianity which I cannot better describe than by styling it a democratic and republican religion." End quote. The churches opposed neither the revolution nor the establishment of democratic institutions. Even when some of them opposed the full institutionalization of religious liberty, they accepted the final outcome with good grace and without nostalgia for the ancien regime. The American civil religion was never anti-clerical or militantly secular, and on the contrary, it borrowed selectively from the religious tradition in such a way that the average American saw no conflict between the two. In this way, the civil religion was able to build up without any bitter struggle with the church powerful symbols of national solidarity and to mobilize deep levels of personal motivation for the attainment of national goals. Such an achievement is by no means to be taken for granted. It would seem that the problem of civil religion is quite general in modern societies, and that the way it is solved or not solved will have repercussions in many spheres. One need only to think of France to see how differently things can go. 
The French Revolution was anti-clerical to the core and attempted to set up an anti-Christian civil religion. Throughout modern French history, the chasm between traditional Catholic symbols and the symbolism of 1789 has been immense. American civil religion is still very much alive. Just three years ago, we participated in a vivid reenactment of the sacrifice theme in connection with the funeral of our assassinated president. The American Israel theme is clearly behind both Kennedy's New Frontier and Johnson's Great Society. Let me give just one recent illustration of how the civil religion serves to mobilize support for the attainment of national goals. On March 15, 1965, President Johnson went before Congress to ask for a strong voting rights bill. Early in the speech, he said, quote, Rarely are we met with a challenge not to our growth or abundance, or our welfare, or our society, but rather to the values and the purposes and the meaning of our beloved nation. The issue of equal rights for American Negroes is such an issue, and should we double our wealth and conquer the stars and still be unequal to this issue, then we will have failed as a people and as a nation. For the country as of a person, quote, what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul, end quote. In a conclusion, he said, quote, above the pyramid on the great seal of the United States, it says in Latin, God has favored our undertaking. God will not favor everything that we do, it is rather our duty to divin his will. I cannot help but believe that he truly understands and that he really favors the undertaking that we begin here tonight, end quote. The civil religion has not always been invoked in favor of worthy causes. On the domestic scene, an American Legion type of ideology that fuses God, country, and flag has been used to attack nonconformist and liberal ideas and groups of all kinds. Still, it has been difficult to use the words of Jefferson and Lincoln to support special interests and undermine personal freedom. The defenders of slavery before the Civil War came to reject thinking of the Declaration of Independence. Some of the most consistent of them turned against not only Jeffersonian democracy, but Reformation religion. They dreamed of a South dominated by medieval chivalry and divine right monarchy. For all the overt religiosity of the radical right today, their relation to the civil religious consensus is tenuous, as when the John Birch Society attacks the Central American symbol of democracy itself. With respect to America's role in the world, the dangers of distortion are greater and the built-in safeguards of the tradition weaker. The theme of the American Israel was used, almost from the beginning, as a justification for the shameful treatment of the Indians so characteristic of our history. It can be overtly or implicitly linked to the ideal of manifest destiny that has been used to legitimate several adventures in imperialism since the early 19th century. Never has the danger been greater than today. The issue is not so much one of imperial expansion, of which we are accused, as of the tendency to assimilate all governments or parties in the world that support our immediate politics or call upon our help by invoking the notion of free institutions and democratic values. Those nations that are for the moment on our side become the free world. A repressive and unstable military dictatorship in South Vietnam becomes the free people of South Vietnam and their government. It is then part of the role of America as the New Jerusalem and the last best hope of Earth to defend such governments with treasure and, eventually, with blood. When our soldiers are actually dying, it becomes possible to consecrate the struggle further by invoking the great theme of sacrifice for the majority of American people who are unable to judge whether the people in South Vietnam, or wherever, are free like us, such arguments are convincing. Fortunately, President Johnson has been less ready to assert that, quote, God has favored our undertaking, end quote, in the case of Vietnam than with respect to civil rights. But others are not so hesitant. The civil religion has exercised long-term pressure for the humane solution of our greatest domestic problem, the treatment of the Negro American. It remains to be seen how relevant it can become for our role in the world at large and whether we can effectually stand for, quote, the revolutionary beliefs for which our forebears fought, end quote, in John F. Kennedy's words. The civil religion is obviously involved in the most pressing moral and political issues of the day. 
but it is also caught in another kind of crisis, theoretical and theological, of which it is at the moment largely unaware. God has clearly become a central symbol in the civil religion from the beginning and remains so today. This symbol is just as central to the civil religion as it is to Judaism or Christianity. In the late 18th century, this posed no problem. Even Tom Paine, contrary to his detractors, was not an atheist. From left to right, and regardless of church or sect, all could accept the idea of God. But today, as even Time magazine has recognized, the meaning of God is by no means so clear or obvious. There is no formal creed in the civil religion. We have had a Catholic president. It is conceivable that we could have a Jewish one. But could we have an agnostic president? Could a man with conscientious scruples about using the word God the way Kennedy and Johnson have used it be elected chief magistrate of our country? If the whole God symbolism requires reformulation, there will be obvious consequences for the civil religion. Consequences perhaps of liberal alienation and a fundamentalist ossification that have not so far been prominent in this realm, civil religion has been a point of articulation between the profoundest commitments of Western religious and philosophical tradition and the common beliefs of ordinary Americans. It is not too soon to consider how the deepening theological crisis may affect the future of this articulation. In conclusion, it may be worthwhile to relate the civil religion to the most serious situation that we as Americans now face what I should call the third time of trial. The first time of trial had to do with the question of independence, whether we should or could run our own offices in our own way. The second time of trial was over the issue of slavery, which in turn was only the most salient aspect of the more general problem of the full institutionalization of democracy within our country. The second problem we are still far from solving, though we have had some notable successes to our credit. But we have been overtaken by a third great problem that has led to a third great crisis, in the midst of which we stand. This is the problem of responsible action in a revolutionary world, a world seeking to attain many of the things, material and spiritual, that we have already attained. Americans have, from the beginning, been aware of the responsibility and the significance our Republican experiment has for the whole world. The first internal political polarization in the new nation had to do with our attitude toward the French Revolution, but we were small and weak then, and foreign entanglements seemed to threaten our very survival. During the last century, our relevance for the world was not forgotten, but our role was seen as purely exemplary. Our democratic republic rebuked tyranny by merely existing. Just after World War I, we were on the brink of taking on a different role in the world. But once again, we turned our backs. Since World War II, the old pattern has become impossible. Every president since Franklin Roosevelt has been groping toward a new pattern of action in the world, one that would be consonant with our power and our responsibilities. For Truman and for the period dominated by John Foster Dulles, that pattern was seen to be the great Manichaean confrontation of East and West, the confrontation of democracy and, quote, the false philosophy of communism, end quote, that provided the structure of Truman's inaugural address. But with the last years of Eisenhower and with successive two presidents, the pattern began to shift. The great problems came to be seen as caused not solely by the evil intent of any one group of men. For Kennedy, it was not so much a struggle against particular men as against, quote, the common enemies of man. Tyranny, poverty, disease, and war itself, end quote. But in the midst of this trend toward a less primitive conception of ourselves and our world, we have somehow, without anyone really intending it, stumbled into a military confrontation where we have come to feel that our honor is at stake. We have in a moment of uncertainty been tempted to rely on our overwhelming physical power rather than on our intelligence, and we have, in part, succumbed to this temptation. Bewildered and unnerved when our terrible power fails to bring immediate success, we are at the edge of a chasm the depth of which no man knows. I cannot help but think of Robinson Jeffers, whose poetry seems more apt now than when it was written, when he said, quote, unhappy country, what wings you have. Weep, it is frequent in human affairs. Weep for the terrible magnificence of the means, the ridiculous incompetence of the reasons, the bloody and shabby pathos of the result, end quote. But as so often before in similar times, we have a man of prophetic stature without the bitterness or misanthropy of Jeffers who, 
as Lincoln before him, calls his nation to its judgment. Quote, when a nation is very powerful but lacking in self-confidence, it is likely to behave in a manner that is dangerous both to itself and to others, end quote. Gradually but unmistakably, America is succumbing to that arrogance of power which has afflicted, weakened, and in some cases destroyed great nations in the past. Quote, if the war goes on and expands, if that fatal process continues to accelerate until America becomes what is not now and never has been, a seeker after unlimited power and empire, then Vietnam will have had a mighty and tragic fallout indeed. I do not believe that will happen. I am very apprehensive, but I still remain hopeful and even confident that America, with its humane and democratic traditions, will find the wisdom to match its power. End quote. Without an awareness that our nation stands under higher judgment, the tradition of civil religion would be dangerous indeed. Fortunately, the prophetic voices have never been lacking. Our present situation brings to mind the Mexican-American War that Lincoln, among so many others, opposed. The spirit of civil disobedience that is alive today in the civil rights movement and the opposition to the Vietnam War that is already clearly outlined by Henry David Thoreau when he wrote, quote, If the law is of such a nature that it requires you to be an agent of injustice to another, then I say, break the law. End quote. Thoreau's words, quote, I would remind my countrymen that they are men first, and Americans at a late and convenient hour, end quote, provide an essential standard for any adequate thought and action in our third time of trial. As Americans, we have been well favored in the world, but it is as men that we will be judged. Out of the first and second times of trial have come, as we have seen, the major symbols of the American civil religion. There seems little doubt that a successful negotiation of this third time of trial, the attainment of some kind of viable and coherent world order, would precipitate a major new set of symbolic forms. So far, the flickering flame of the United Nations burns too low to be the focus of a cult, but the emergence of a genuine transnational sovereignty would certainly change this. It would necessitate the incorporation of vital international symbolism into our civil religion, or perhaps, a better way of putting it, it would result in American civil religion becoming simply one part of a new civil religion of the world. It is useless to speculate on the form such a civil religion might take, though it obviously would draw on religious traditions beyond the sphere of biblical religion alone. Fortunately, since the American civil religion is not the worship of the American nation, but an understanding of the American experience in light of the ultimate and universal reality, the reorganization entailed by such a new situation need not disrupt the American civil religion's continuity. A world civil religion could be accepted as a fulfillment, not as a denial of American civil religion. Indeed, such an outcome has been the eschatological hope of American civil religion from the beginning. To deny such an outcome would be to deny the meaning of America itself. Behind the civil religion, at every point, lie biblical archetypes. Exodus chosen people, promised land, new Jerusalem, and sacrificial death and rebirth. But it is also genuinely American and genuinely new. It has its own prophets and its own martyrs, its own sacred events and sacred places, its own solemn rituals and symbols. It is concerned that America be a society as perfectly in accord with the will of God as men can make it and a light to all nations. It has often been used and is being used today as a cloak for petty interests and ugly passions. It is in need, as at any living faith, of continual reformation, of being measured by universal standards. But it is not evident that it is incapable of growth and of new insight. It does not make any decisions for us. It does not remove us from moral ambiguity. In Lincoln's fine phrase, and, quote, almost chosen people, end quote, but it is a heritage of moral and religious experience from which we still have much to learn as we formulate the decisions that lie ahead.